At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to the third transmission of Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and hauntological. I'm Sean and I'm here with Lucy. Hello. Our first two episodes both dealt with the eerie and the hauntological in the form of ghost stories. This week we're turning our attention to the weird and looking at something very different, body horror. This is a very fitting subject matter, as I was bedridden with flu all last week, and as you may be able to hear, I'm still full of disease and unbalanced humours. So, right now, I am very aware of the vulnerability and fragility of the body. Lucy, why don't you tell us about the relationship between the weird and body horror? Okay, well, body horror is essentially a subgenre of horror fiction and film, in which the focus of the horror is on uh, some form of loss of control over the body. Uh, this is in terms of the uh, the autonomy of the body, the sovereignty of the body, or even the kind of material stability or integrity of the body. And this is a very much kind of an ancient and primordial fear. But the translation from this into popular culture is one that really kind of gravitates around Freud in the early 20th century. And this is kind of in response to his idea of the four great humiliations of humanity, the kind of scientific revelations that um, brought about kind of a sense of our place in the universe and the kind of fragility or minorness thereof. Which is something we touched on in our first episode. Yes, and it links very much to the weird. But Freud, I mean, Freud kind of picked up on this as a strain in literature when he wrote about the uncanny. Uh, one of the classic examples of body horror in literature is uh, E.T.A. Hoffman's The Sandman, which, uh, amongst other things, involves a very strange episode in which a, a small child's arms and legs and um, body parts are switched around. And also comes from some very later things involving an android's eyes coming out. Um, fantastic stuff. But, um, and you know, Freud, in this respect, was an influence on the surrealists who picked up that theme and really ran with it. Um, and this, again, crossed over into a, an aesthetic tendency that's regarded... Well, I, I refer to it as kind of biomorphism, uh, which is a kind of variation on body horror. If we think of body horror as the micro, the kind of um, purely personal... Uh, fears surrounding loss of bodily autonomy, then uh, the macro is biomorphism, where it's um, kind of uncontrollable biological matter and materiality spreading out, kind of engulfing the world. And this is something we see depicted in things like the paintings of Max Ernst and Dorothea Tanning, uh, and comes out in stuff like the works of Unica Zern. But in terms of the weird, Lovecraft didn't really identify with the surrealists in the same way that well, in the in the way that I described that um, they saw themselves as kind of a subversive thing. He was overtly quite conservative in, in his approach, but he um, he was at the same time, you know, he was a modernist in the sense that he was working in response to these uh, great shifts in humanity and its understanding of its place in the universe and weird and weird fiction. And cosmic horror was sort of his response to that. But Lovecraft's modernism was a reactionary modernism. Very much so. But body horror comes into his stories quite often uh, in things like The Shadow Over Innsmouth, uh, which involves kind of uh, odd kind of genetic discoveries and things to do with fish people. And there's also um, things like the, uh, the discoveries in Arthur German. 
And so this is this is connected to the weird uh, because you'll remember we said in the last episode that the eerie dealt with a kind of failure of presence, whereas uh, the weird was kind of an abundance of presence. That is kind of what we see coming out in body horror, just something overwhelming, something that is undeniably present and spilling over. It's kind of too real. This kind of fitted in with Lovecraft's cosmic horror because, or his sense of um, the horror of being in the universe, because it was a reminder of the fragility of um, humanity, the fragility of kind of civilized humanity that humanity tries to uh, push onto the universe and uh, form around it. And, you know, a reminder of the failures of that. And that is very much the theme of what we're going to be covering in pretty gross detail (laughs) in tonight's episode, where we're going to be talking about David Cronenberg's 1975 film Shivers. Hello, I'm Ronald Merrick, and I'm here to invite you aboard our Starliner. Yes, it's true. Day-to-day living becomes a luxury cruise when you've made your home at Starliner Tower Apartments. Although downtown Montreal is only 12 and a half minutes away, once you've crossed the Carrier Bridge to Starliner Island, the noise and the traffic of the city might as well be a million miles away. Shivers was Cronenberg's first feature film. Uh, it came out in 1975, which, interestingly, well, I think it's interesting, came, this was six years before the first publication on what would come to be known as the HIV epidemic. Shivers is also known as The Parasite Murders. They came from within Frizons, and it was shot under the name Orgy of the Blood Parasites. It was also partially publicly funded, which was the source of uh, not inconsiderable controversy after the film was released. It stars Paul Hampton, Joe Silver, and Lynn Lowry. The film takes place in the modernist apartment complex Starliner Towers outside of Montreal on a lovely isolated little island. The story goes like this. Dr. Emil Hobbs has been working on a new form of transplant surgery, developing symbionts, that is, parasites that live in codependent harmony with their hosts, to replace defective organs. Hobbes has come to believe that humanity has lost touch with its bodily nature, with its instincts. He develops a new parasite that is spread through sexual contact. When infested, the parasite triggers uncontrollable, amoral hypersexuality in the host. Hobbes has implanted the parasites into a young woman, his mistress. Unknown to him, she is very sexually active and spreads the parasites around the compartment complex, that Starliner Towers. Hobbes realises how grievous his error is and kills both her and himself. The damage, however, has already been done. The parasite spreads uncontrollably throughout the population of the ultra-modern self-contained apartment complex. Everyone, regardless of gender or age, becomes infested by the parasites. Following an orgy in the pool that seemingly brings together the entire population of the complex, the residents calmly leave the complex and drive into Montreal to spread the infestation further. One of the most striking things I found about this film is the fact that it has an overwhelming number of similarities to J.G. Ballard's High Rise, uh, which was adapted into a film recently by the director Ben Wheatley. And um, this is something that 
I think is kind of a cornerstone to a lot of what I got from the film, just because it touches on a lot of themes that they share. One is the fact that um, both of them present a very kind of aspirational idea of um, of development, of progress, uh, demonstrated through these uh, luxury apartment complexes. But both are things that kind of are essentially parables of the kind of failure of that, of this kind of idea and play out rather horribly because we see them um, succumbing to chaos and disorder, either through intense class struggles or through a, um, or through brain parasites, as we see in the (laughs) latter example. Um, And even kind of down to the kind of opening spiel, we have the wonderful uh, demonstration of the kind of here's Starliner Towers, all these uh, wonderful facilities, um, this glorious, uh, sleek commercial um, that, belies the kind of horror that is um, taking place there. Sail through life in quiet and comfort. Cruise Starliner. So both um, J.G. Ballard's High Rise and David Cronenberg's Shivers play into a very particular social, cultural idea of um, how we perceive these high-rises, which I think we'll kind of probably go into when we invariably cover high-rise in a later episode. Mm. But the key thing to remember is that one of the significant things about this is the fact that um, these are essentially planned communities. Uh, They're kind of a modernist departure from the uh, sprawling, unplanned, uh, kind of encrusted, to some extent bourgeois, or very, very much kind of grounded historical idea of a home or a kind of owned space that existed up until the end of the 19th century and this is a kind of this is a much more utilitarian kind of model it started in fact on broadly socialist principles um before gradually kind of morphing into these um fairly bourgeois as i've said aspirational uh entities but a lot of um the emphasis that's placed on these uh, in their design and their development is the fact that they're self-sustaining units. So they're egalitarian in the sense that everyone is assigned these little spaces that are perfectly suited to their needs and it has um, beneath them and around them they have shared facilities. So they have a swimming pool, they have parking facilities and they have, they in fact have like on-site shops and indeed an, a doctor on-site. Um, and this was, this was kind of playing into the social role that was marked out for them. But this, this is actually kind of tapping into an earlier vein of thinking around society a sense sense that it kind of operates like an organism it's self-sustaining it's self-contained and as this individual unit it can go off into the world but um when you come to think about these structures and these social organizations as a biological entity that again it opens up a kind of conceptual realm to what happens when things go wrong in a biological sense to disease to infestation to parasites to the decay of the body and essentially, that's what we see in varying forms in both High Rise and in, um, in Shivers. Look, you got, you got man, right? And you got parasites that live in, on, and around man, right? So, why not, why not breed a parasite that can do something useful? In terms of thinking about where Shivers falls in the history of body horror, uh, one of the interesting things to think about is the fact that J.G. Ballard is essentially the um, the cultural link between the earlier ideas that I was talking about with regard to Freud and the Surrealist and 
uh, kind of 19th century medical literature leading up to that and the popular form of body horror um, and the model that would go on to be kind of the signature of David Cronenberg and people like John Carpenter with The Thing. Ballard was a huge influence on Cronenberg. Uh, this we can see from the fact that he would years later do um, his famous adaptation of Crash. I think that was 1995. But even before that, um, there are kind of elements bleeding through, not least the influence of High Rise. Um, but a couple of other works were also very significant, uh, not just on the film Shivers, but of the evolution of body horror as a genre. Um, one of them was um, J.G. Ballard's trilogy, uh, which began with The Drowned World, followed up by The Burning World, uh, and then followed on from there by The Crystal World. All three of these are kind of separate stories, but they all have the common theme that they depict humanity being overtaken by kind of violent natural force uh, that disrupts the human world and uh, redefines its relationship to the natural world. Um, and the most powerful, pro probably the most powerful example of this is in The Crystal World. Another interesting comparison between Shivers and High Rise, which you've already touched upon, is the fact that the the radical destructive uh, transformation that happens in Shivers is because of the introduction of the parasite, of this new entity. Mm. But High Rise, the, um, the destruction, uh, um, the destructive new form of society that emerges out of it isn't because of any kind of introduction of a new entity. It's the implication is almost that if you just keep a group of people together in one place for long enough, this is just what happens. Yeah. And I think that feels um, closer to the um, the spirit of the, of, um, the drowned world, etc. in that it feels more like this is something natural. This is something mm. that's come out from just how human beings are rather than from uh, an outside force being introduced in. It's also kind of interesting in the sense that this isn't necessarily a disaster, or at least it's not a disaster for every party involved, because if it's a natural progression, then some element at work in the status quo and in this new state is triumphant. It's working for that. Uh, one of the uh, comments that I think it was um, Cronenberg himself actually uh, made about shivers is uh, he, he's quoted as saying, uh, it's my conceit that perhaps some diseases perceived as diseases which destroy a well-functioning machine actually turn it into a new but still functioning machine with a different purpose. Uh, look at it Look at it from this point of view. Very vital, very excited, really having a good time. It's a triumph if you're a virus. There's actually, and um, when you see uh, Dr. Hobbes' laboratory, or the laboratory of one of his um, assistants, who's very interested in venereal disease, he has a poster on his wall saying sex is the invention of a very successful venereal disease. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting that the character is actually called Dr. Hobbes, because I think this is almost certainly a callback to some of Cronenberg's um, own readings because uh, we know he studied uh, media, probably a good bit of philosophy, but this could be a case for a comparison to Thomas Hobbes in his idea of um, the, his, well, his sense of the Republic, what was his book called? Oh, it was called Leviathan. His Leviathan, the, um, the Leviathan, the idea of a nation comprised of its individual units working as a, um, a collective thing. That's, that's the one with the famous cover where it actually depicts a king as this great kind of giant figure who's torso uh, his entire form his entire form is humans 
it's like compressed. I think it was like in the engraving they actually counted about three hundred individual humans. It's a really grotesque image, and the idea that this this is li- literally the body politic. Mm. Um, although I'm very controversially, I'm going to disagree with you there. I don't think it's a callback to Hobbes, or because Hobbes's whole idea is um, that the Leviathan, the monster, which is basically about the horrible things kings can do, is his book is defending that power on grounds that, as terrible as it is, that a king can do whatever he wants to you. Mm. That is preferable to living without a sovereign, whereas the situation is that of the war of all against all. So, and Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, thinks... Yeah, the war, the state of nature, the war, where, like we famously says, life is nasty, brutish, and short. It's so nasty that it is, uh, it is better to live with a despot than it is to live without any kind of sovereign. Okay, so it's like kind of um, one would equate sort of I don't know a massacre of civilians to um, cutting off a decaying, infected limb. I uh, think that um, <laughs> uh, I, I have I have to admit I've not read Leviathan, but uh, but I think but I've heard. That um, Hobbes says the only exception to this, like, um, is if the king is going to kill you personally, in which case all bets are off, go for his eyes. Mm. <laughs> Excellent. Indeed, yes. Cool. Um, but yeah, going back to uh, Ballard, uh, one of his other great major books, which I think was a huge influence on um, a huge influence on Cronenberg, uh, and would actually be the um, the kind of the work in progress that eventually um, morphed into his novel Crash a couple of years later was the Atrocity Exhibition. Um, and that was kind of a, a free-form semi-novel, semi-narrative, semi-prose poem kind of thing, kind of piece, uh, a lot of which was kind of spontaneously generated and is fairly, fairly repetitive for that reason, but um, deals with the subject of kind of schizophrenia, um, or he, as he refers to it, the exploded text or the exploded body, the idea of the fragmentation of consciousness into separate entities or the spreading out of, um, well, it, it's the loss of the sovereignty, the loss of the individuality, the loss of the bodily integrity that is at the heart of body horror, mm. um, but kind of raised up to an abstract level. And that is kind of, that is what created the ground that made it possible for people like Cronenberg to explore kind of sociological questions using body horror as that medium. Something very interesting about um, the Atrocity Exhibition, um, as you know, if you've read it or like we tried to read it, then sort of like wussed out because it got all a little bit too much, is one of the things that makes it so disturbing is that it's a famously very clinical novel and which is this true of Crash as well, which again, I had to give up because it just got a little bit too much for me. That it is a very, it's in some ways it's quite, like you said, it's quite tedious in some ways. It's very repetitive because it is a, it's meant to, it is meant to be a kind of like a cold, inhuman or a human glimpse of what um, modern existence is actually like, of an exploded existence where nothing, literally nothing means anything where no, all values are contingent and we are just biology intersecting with technology. Mm. And that, that would come to glorious fruition in um, Cronenberg's later film Videodrome. Ah, yes, we yes. get to, once we're, we've decided that uh, once we once we get good at this podcasting <laughs> game, uh, we are going to be, we're all we're going to have things to say about Videodrome, or we are going to have such things <laughs> to say about Videodrome. Yeah. But again, just a quick callback to Freud. This is um, this is essentially a manifestation of the setup he created um, 
with, with his writings about, um, well, essentially trying to pin down what schizophrenia was. Um, and it's kind of, it's uh, less extreme forms in narcissism. And it's, it's born out of this sense of uh, failure of object attachment, uh, which leads to an inability to connect with an outer world, which can result in things like the loss of one's own bodily integrity, the inability to see one's hands or one's limbs as parts of a contingent whole and instead these free floating things in the universe. Or a reverse of that, a kind of extension of the personal onto the universe or becoming kind of like the ma- the microcosm in and of itself. The disper- Yeah, again, as Ballard would poetically put it, exploding. Mm. The exploded mind, the exploded consciousness. So going back to the comments I made just now about the coldness of Ballard's vision, there's certainly something extremely cold about this movie it's a very it's um it's very stark it's very documentary-ish it's distant it's so distant it is voyeuristic it makes you feel like a voyeur Mm. um in that it makes it makes you see these things but uh well at the same time you've chosen to watch it obviously but it does it has it feels closer to a nature documentary there is very very little character identification yeah, yeah, like um, as uh, as you might have as you might have noticed, dear listener, um, I only mentioned the name of one character in my little summary just now because honestly, I can't remember the names of the other characters. In my notes, I've got them: a Swedish couple, old people, um, old umbrella lady, man with hair, uh, <laughs> other other people with seventies hair. Creepy atelier. Um, <laughs> there aren't characters. I, I mean, I maintain there aren't characters in this film in the same way there aren't characters in the David Attenborough documentary. <laughs> or I, or, although the BBC's anthropomorphization of the animals has gone quite out of hand. It is definitely, it is a symptom of degenerate modernity. Um, (laughs) I think it's really interesting to um, contrast this naturalism with the last two films you've looked at, um, especially with Don't Look Now, actually. Maybe not so much The Stone Tape, but Don't Look Now is a very impressionistic film. It's all about the feelings that it it, um, it, it brings out in you, the viewer. Um, There's no, it's not not chronological, there's lots of sort of like um, breaking down of time in order to for the sake of putting across and generating those feelings in the audience there's nothing of that um to this everything's linear um although we like scenes do intersect obviously actually there's a very interesting intersection at the beginning of the film which we'll talk about in a moment but it's all very naturalistic um it doesn't have the um don't look now it's all about the richness of the old world of sort of like um like the grandeur of Europe of Venice while Shivers feels a lot more new world or you know more accurately new to Europeans world obviously mm. um where there isn't a history there this is something new something fundamentally modern that's been constructed and planned I mean that's kind of what um I can't remember. Owen Hathley speaks about it in um, his um, his book *Militant Modernism*, which was one of my main sources for some of the research on this episode. But he talks about uh, the idea of modernism, particularly from a sort of socialist sense of modernism, is leaving short shadows. Is the quote he gives. Um, but yeah, and that's essentially what happens. It's like these are seen as kind of. So can you explain that a little bit? Leaving short shadows. So um, leaving a kind of limited mark on the environment, as in these you're given this space to exist and serve your purpose as a human, but um, but you're not kind of 
you're not there to leave your mark on the space. You're not there to kind of make it into this family pile. You're not there to add bits or to grow things. These are cold, hard, concrete things because you're at best meant to put things up with blue tack. You, you're not meant to change these things or, or you're there for a limited time. And this is seen as a kind of flying in the face of uh, old bourgeois ideas of um, incrustation is the count is the contrary term the, the growing onto a space and um and leaving your marks and, ki- and filling everything with like chintz and victorian um, so victorian this, ephemera so things. is this what's meant by the expression um living without traces yes yes so what's interesting about this style of filmmaking is that it reinforces the scientific origin of body horror, mm. uh, which again ties back to the things that we've been saying about, we, again, we, all, the way back, all the way back in episode one, we said about Lovecraft and materialism, that this is scientific horror. It's, it's not supernatural. It's things that, um, it is just new combinations of matter that already exists in the world, novel combinations of things that are already there. The modernism of Starliner Towers is kind of reflected by the coldness imbued in the film itself, mm, and the coldness of the, the coldness of the concrete, the solidity of the materials. Uh, that's kind of interesting because that's something that kind of Ballard also touched upon in um, some of his later writings about kind of architecture and humanity and its relation, the relationship between these things. Because even though, um, as we've both said, and it's been often said that modern structures are sterile, whereas uh, older structures have a kind of sense of growing over time and being a bit more biological. This is feeding again into this idea of the kind of exploded consciousness, or possibly even the the exploded libido, the spreading out of these things, that um, there's something, there's some kind of sense that sexuality or humanity can um, spread itself even into these seemingly inhospitable um, materials. Um, And that's he, he made an interesting kind of comment, um, actually, in the 90s, where he talks about, um, well, it, it touches on the idea of paraphilia, which he then picks up in Crash, the idea of kind of uh, applying affections or developing feelings towards inanimate objects or destroyed objects. And he talks about how, like, people fall in love all the time at the love, but never seem to fall in love with Heathrow, but giving there the implication that people could fall in love at or indeed with Heathrow Airport. But, Indeed, I think we both know people who have. Mm, <laughs> um, yes, and also, uh, but you know, there is there are there are trends of this in modernist architecture as well. Le Corbusier, in fact, kind of equated his own buildings with a kind of sensuality and a kind of poetic expression, even though they are seemingly cold, utilitarian concrete. There's that kind of duality there. Yeah, uh, I can't remember the name of the essay, but I have read an essay by Ballard. It's his defense of it's his defense of science fiction, and he kind of defends it. He talks precisely about the eroticism of chrome, of um, of of a straight of a straight lines and carefully plotted curves, as opposed to the the organic encrustations of bourgeois architecture. Mm. Um, and he said, and like uh, well, sort of like he, his emphasis being that we desire this. This is an expression of uh, desire. And actually, um, contra Freud's take on schizophrenia as a, as a narcissism is uh, Deleuze and Guattari in their very important book, Anti-Oedipus, um, which obviously sets them against Freud in so many ways, in which they precisely, uh, in which, uh, it's, been, it's been a long time since I've read that very complicated book, but uh, a major emphasis of theirs is the machinic element of desire and how 
desire finds its way into production, uh, into sort of like in, into constructing things, into making things, include from machinery and tables to um, social order. How this is, how does like for them desire is inherently productive uh, force. So there's something for them. There's something sec there's something sexual about so capitalism and uh, capitalist societies, and that they're in, they are expressions of uh, of desire for, as well as um, limits placed upon desire. So to go back to talking about the style of filmmaking itself, um, what's interesting uh, about it is that it kind of, um, this coldness, this um, documentary style of filmmaking, it reinforces the scientific origin of the horror. Um, this is like this is the kind of stuff that we talked about again in um, episode one, um, where we're talking when we talked about um, Lovecraft's relationship with materialism. The horror of um, Shivers isn't uh, some, anything supernatural, obviously. It is um, simply a novel combination of pre-existing matter. It's something. Um, what Hobbes has done is he's taken living things that already exist and he's changed them into something new, but it's still working with. Um, it's not ex nihilo, it's working with stuff that's already there and doing something to it and producing something new uh, with it, with um, through modern science. Um, uh, as such, so viewing this hor um, the horror in this kind of unvisceral, detached documentary manner, it kind of compounds it, it reinforces it. Uh, it becomes as... This ties in, and this ties in with what we were saying earlier about natural disasters. It kind of makes it feel like we're watching uh, something as indifferent as an earthquake or, or volcanic eruption or tsunami. This isn't something that um, there's something inhuman about it. Even though obviously it, it does have a human origin, it's not something that has any kind of like um, will or agency behind it. It's just a terrible thing that's happening now. I don't, I don't quite get it. Here, uh, Hobbes believed that. Man is an animal that thinks too much. An over-rational animal that's lost touch with its body and its instincts. How do you like that? In other words, you know, too much brain and not enough guts. So what he came up with to help our guts along was a parasite that's, uh, here, uh, a combination of aphrodisiac and venereal disease that will hopefully turn the world into one beautiful mindless orgy. Well, I think it sounds a little crazy to me. But all the same, um, although the, the the horror, the infestation, is something that's happening without agency, it was brought into the world by an agency. Uh, so let's talk about what Hob what does Hobbes want? What's uh, what what was his end game rather? Mm. Because of, like I said, he dies at the beginning of the film. We're told that sort of Hobbes's idea is that he uh, wants the world to stop thinking so hard about everything and just. Everyone come together in one great big swingers party, basically one great big endless um, orgy, one mm. uh, uh, one great big Dionysian festival of debauchery. This is um, the doc, one of the two doctors who are kind of more or less the main protagonists, um, talking about uh, Doctor Hobbes, who is in fact their kind of former mentor. That's how they. Uh, come to be aware of the murder that we see at the beginning. And interestingly, they say that uh, you would perhaps have the, uh, the notion that Hobbes is something of a Lothario, but they say that, no, he's very, very dull. He was a terrible <laughs> lecturer because he was just um, uh, just very, very robotic and mechanical and not that interesting. Mm. 
uh, the, my own personal body horror is really coming to the fore at the moment, as you as you can probably hear. You're holding together very well, Sean. Ah, uh, I'm powered by whiskey and ibuprofen. Ah, <laughs> uh, so Hobbes feels so. Let's talk about let's talk about eros and logos, shall mm. we, Lucy? Eros is desire, it's libido, it's the passions. Logos is reason and rationality and limitation, self-imposed mm. limitation, rational limitation. It's the thing that Le- uh, Nietzsche would kind of characterize with his uh, conflicting impulses of the uh, Dionysiac and the Apolline. Exactly. The Apolline, uh, that is pertaining to the god Apollo, is the reasonable and the rational, uh, while the Dionysian uh, pertaining to um, the erotic, is, it pertains to the erotic, the sensual, uh, the passionate. So, um, in because uh, he, he he coins these expressions in his first book, The Birth of Tragedy, mm-hmm. uh, and he says that um, so he calls uh, Apolline or Apollonian art um, is sculptural art because sculpture is about um, containment. Ultimately, it's a um, it's um, imposing uh, a design upon uh, the block of marble mm. uh, while the Dionysian art is sort of, is, is sort of like it's like a rave really that's yeah. the way I think about it it's like a rave or a concert where it kind of gets it gets out of control it's explosive it spills over the edges mm. and this is kind of a reading that I think Cronenberg really wanted to bring to the fore and um, to people to be aware of as they're seeing the film. Um, I was actually um, looking through some of the script and uh, some of the stage notes are actually quite interesting because um, I didn't actually notice this when I watched the film, but uh, his office uh, is filled with um, what was originally meant to be filled with kind of classical imagery, pictures of fauns and satyrs and dyads, which were classically uh, indicative of the bestial chaos of primordial humanity. Uh, and in pastoral poetry was um, given the kind of counterpoint to the sea, which is ordered and regular and flat or, you know, or comes in waves, but it's ex- predictable waves. Um, and so, yeah, this is definitely, I think, a reading that he wanted to bring in, uh, as indeed Freud did, because I mean, Freud always used kind of classical analogies. And I think he was more or less kind of following in following on from that mm. um so, and so like the reason why we're talking about the the apollonian and the dionysian or the apolline of the dionysiac um is that sort of nietzsche feels that sort of like the problem with um contemporary society with like with 19th century society was that we're too apollonian and not dionysian enough which isn't to say that um uh, like the crude reading of this is that he's saying that we need to get rid of um, the Apolline and we just need to let our hair down, get drunk, get stoned, get wasted and have a great big rave for a few centuries and that'll sort us out culturally. He's a lot more, uh, as is often the case of Nietzsche, he is a lot more nuanced than people think. He does un- he does believe in the need for the Logos, for the Apolline, for reason and order. But he thinks we've had too much of that and he thinks that we need this dynamism between these two forces uh, in order for uh, our culture to be healthy. And at the time of writing, he he believed that uh, Wagner's operas were kind of the rebirth of a Dionysian. Worth uh, bearing in mind, he was also a very young man. He was very, this. very young. And uh, Nietzsche, like the later Nietzsche, like completely repudiated this book because um, it's a di- because um, he rejected 
dichotomies mm. um, in his later work, and he, be, and he became more fond of chemical metaphors, the idea that there's actually loads of factors that come together to produce um, uh, a particular outcome. And he also famously fell out with uh, Wagner, because uh, uh, ironically, considering what happened to Nietzsche's legacy, Nietzsche had absolutely no time for anti-Semites, and Wagner became a passionate anti-Semite, and uh, I don't need this shit. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Anyway, so... But again, why does Hobbes want to overthrow Logos with Eros? Because he's a kind of a utopian, surely. He thinks that this is going to make things better by whatever hell standard he's applying that makes him think that the thing the world needs is sex parasites. Mm. But he thinks that this... Um, this is a utopian uh, drive on his part. And I'm using the word utopian in the pejorative sense here. Like, he thinks that all we need is one weird trick and to <sighs> sort everything out. And the one weird trick being the inf again, infestation by sex parasites that turn mm. you into uh, an infomaniac um, with no regard for morality or any traditional taboo. Mm. Uh, and of course, it all goes really horribly wrong. But like the whole point, sort of the the the, fa the, utop the failure of uh, utopianism is precisely because no, it's not as simple as that. You can't. There isn't just one weird trick that makes everything okay. Mm -hmm. And what Hobbes seems to have realised is that his project to bring about a total um, release or liberation of uh, libido of um, the erotic is a really bad idea uh, because what it's not made clear exactly what uh, the young woman who none of these characters have names as far as I'm concerned um, what the young woman who he's planted the parasites in does but she like it becomes clear that oh like he realizes oh this is not what I had in mind this is terrifying mm. and um, kills her and kills her horribly like it's um because um because uh, and it's a very clinical way of doing it um uh, he suffocates her um cuts her open with a scalpel and pours acid into where the parasites are um you see that was i had a kind of different reading of that scene because I, I i noticed earlier you mentioned that kind of he, he kills himself out of apparent remorse for what he's done and what he's created i don't, I don't think um yeah i think he might have some sort of other plan uh going because and this this feeds back into um, the idea of the displacement of consciousness or possibly even the displacement of the libido. Um, but in doing, and you know, linking back into kind of the Ernstian, Ballardian sense of um, biomorphism, uh, that rather than killing himself, what he's maybe doing is, um, is transferring his consciousness or, or kind of libidinous part of his being into kind of the biological matter that is kind of fusing together and forming this kind of communal, um, kind of unified biology that's t slowly taking over the building. I think he's transferred his consciousness in somehow into the parasites. But then why does he um, obviously make such a concerted effort to destroy the parasites? Um... Uh, but, I'm like, not we're, sure, but but well, maybe 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 that's what he was trying to do. Because but before, um, well, we see everyone kind of coming round to new ways of thinking. Because the reason I say this is because there's that wonderful monologue where uh, the lady is talking about a dream that she had while she was in the uh, apartment building, where she talks about um, coming into contact with an old man and they have sex. And uh, even though uh, she finds him repulsive, he kind of brings her around by saying, kind of like no, old flesh too is erotic flesh. And I think 
my I don't know my kind of reading of the of that scene is the is that um, Doctor Hobbs has somehow turned himself into some kind of amorphous sex ghost. Uh, who, <laughs> uh, no, bear with me, others who has transferred himself into the consciousness and the dreams and the being of this new collective order that he's establishing through his. Vermine progeny. Uh, I, um, I no, I actually <laughs> you, you don't I, have to go with me on this. I but. no, I, I actually really fundamentally disagree because I think that um, again the horror of this is that this is something that's spilling out of control, and the suggestion that mm. he has in some sense imbued it with his own personality is to humanize it. And precisely, mm. no, this is a, this is horror brought about by parasites. By sex parasites yes, that but, look like willies. This isn't even though they're gross. They are they are erotic, as is all old horrible things. They are all erotic. All flesh is erotic. Yeah, flesh. we are all one flesh. You know? <laughs> um, yes, which again becomes. I'm going to give a bit of a callback to that, but um, but no, I I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I I only saw it once. <laughs> I only saw it once, and I'll be honest. It was after a couple of glasses of wine. Uh, it was yeah. a very good evening. Uh-huh. But anyway, this is something that we disagree over. Mm. I think that um, Hobbes realises that his image of the new society uh, is not actually what the new society is going to be. Like, I think that's why he kills her, why he tries to destroy the parasites, and why he kills himself. Mm. Uh, I think that this is sort of this was kind of like. Um, the moment when he loses faith in his vision, that sort of like, you know, the one weird trick I need here is to unleash his uh, libido uh, through my sex parasites. Uh, and then, no, I'm not getting tired of using the expression sex parasite. Mm. Uh, but he realizes, he look, he stares too long into a Dionysian almost. Like to paraphrase Nietzsche sort of here, if the Dionysian is sunlight, um, the Apollinian are the block that form in our sight to protect our vision from its intensity. Ah. Uh, he, I think that he realises his foolishness and that's why he destroys himself and tries to destroy his work, but it's already far, far too late. Yeah, whatever, whatever his intentions were or were towards the end, they have almost certainly gone beyond his, his predictions. You know what I mean? He tells me that even old flesh is erotic flesh. That disease is the love of two alien kinds of creatures for each other. That even dying is an act of eroticism. I think the relationship between eros and logos, or between desire and reason, uh, is an interesting. I think it is a very interesting thing. This is something that philosophers debate still, uh, and I think. This um, question actually points us towards uh, another matter entirely, which is a very pressing concern. Namely, is this a zombie movie? Mm. So let's think a little bit about what uh, makes a zombie a zombie. Uh, A zombie is a person um, from whom reason has been totally subtracted. They are devoid of reason and they are purely appetitive. They are just desire, want, appetite, without any capacity to reason or to rationalise about their desires. They're just they're just the mouth that desires uh, flesh, right? desires meat. Uh, the archetypal zombie, the Ramiro zombie, doesn't feel pain, doesn't plan, doesn't have any kind of consideration beyond the satisfaction of a drive. Mm. 
Romero actually goes into a similar space with his uh, 1978 film, uh, Dawn of the Dead, where he um, he actually sees them, um, the zombies kind of come, or all coming to the shopping mall, and you originally think, oh, it's because the human, the live humans are in the shopping mall that they're coming to eat them, but really they're just doing it out of habit. Um, which is kind of an interestingly similar statement uh, to this film, not least because um, shopping malls are the distant cousin of the high-rise apartment block. They were, I mean, the original kind of gener- first generation of shopping malls in America were designed by this gentleman called Victor Grau, who had been a committed socialist in Europe in um, in the early part of the 20th century, went to America with the idea of creating unitary, uh, egalitarian sort of public facilities, which would have uh, affordable housing and shop, and kind of, it was a kind of liberal socialist idea because he was he was talking about uh, liberal socialist. He was. Um, it was kind of merging capitalism with the idea of public service. Uh, but eventually, these all turned into uh, great cathedrals to consumerism, and he went back to Europe distraught and uh, very much unhappy about the situation <laughs> there. But, but I mean, what we're seeing is not so much the kind of removal of of consciousness as the hijacking of it. Yes, precisely. Uh, and what's also interesting as well is the fact that sort of like um, this place, this sort of like um, this uh, outpost of capital is such an important part that the zombified, that the zombies are still called call towards it, they still desire it. I think again this kind of links back to the idea that desire can have a certain, can be imbued in the inanimate, in, and not only the inanimate but in the modern, uh, in the distinctly modern and in the capitalist modern. Mm. Mm. Um, but whereas in um, kind of the zombie films we're seeing uh, consciousness utterly eroded or kind of just reduced to its minimum setting, um, what we're seeing in Shivers is instead a kind of hijacking of um, a hijacking of consciousness because they retain all their critical faculties even to the point at which they. It's like I said earlier, they're coming round to a new way of thinking, assisted by this kind of parasitic influence where certain aspects of that kind of um, mental inhibition have been removed. And so it's it's just kind of a repurposing of their reasoning organs. And then they form, they appear to be forming a very uh, coherent plan to spread the disease further. Exactly. Um, yeah. In that end scene where they all kind of depart from the from the apartment block in their cars separately. In, in fact, um, the friends that I watched it with, we had this very same conversation. This is a zombie film. And uh, one of them said, they drive away at the end. Zombies don't drive. This is not a zombie film. Unless we're thinking about 2005's Land of the Dead, where they... Didn't they drive? No, they, no, the zombies don't drive. They could use cars or things. They, they, no, they can't. Um, <laughs> but they, um, but they do kind of sort of like they figure out tool use again. That's it. Yeah. They can't drive. But Land of the Dead wasn't a very good film. Uh, sort of like uh, all of the all like the subtlety with like the Marxism of um, Dawn of the Dead is replaced with very, very um, obvious. The rich people all live on the top of the giant skyscraper with their orange juice and their salads, and somehow money still matters in this society. Um, Of course, Dennis Hopper has it all. um, Yes, of course, we do love George Romero. God rest his wonderful, wonderful soul. But But, um, um, but sort of like I'm kind of thinking of like the other genre reference um, that are kind. That are kind of like shivers. Um, uh, it's not really like uh, Twenty Days Later, even though it's an infect, even though it's a biological infection. Because again, the infected in Twenty Days Later uh, have lost all reason, and they are just killing machines now. It's mm. what's more like is Garth Ennis's uh, comic book series uh, Crossed. Oh, yeah. where, um, oh god, yeah, I've seen that. 
Yeah, horrid, isn't it? There is a character called Horsecock whose like whose main line is Horsecock, and he hits people with the horsecock. With a horsecock, yes. Um, the twist is the infected in this who are called the crossed because the infection causes uh, a, a very obvious red cross shaped mark on the face. Uh, don't lose their ability to reason. It just turns them into murderous sadists mm. that um, have um, act out every single murderous, sadistic, um, sexual impulse that they have, and they do so. And because they haven't lost their ability to reason, oh, they're very creative and they plan and they plot and they set up traps to catch the uninfected so they can do horrible things to them. Uh, much like a Crash and the Atrocity exhibition, I have never been able to finish a crossed comic, uh, not, not even the much, even on the very interesting one, Alan Moore wrote because it just gets, it's just so. Horrible, very, very horrible. To the extent I'm not sure. Uh, to, to the, uh, ironic, really, that we're doing a horror film podcast and I'm listening to things that I found too unpleasant to read. Uh, There's going to be a lot of this, I'm expecting. Yeah, yeah, we're going to eventually we'll come to a film that I'll just have to shut off halfway through and refuse to carry on watching and it'll just be Lucy alone in the room. Um, but I think that's, a, I think um, I would not be at all surprised if Shivers was um, a reference on Garth Ennis of um, Preacher Fame's um, Crossed uh, series. Yeah. So you mentioned in your earlier part of the description that this actually um, has been identified by some critics as uh, predicting the kind of paranoia that would surround AIDS about five years later uh, when that would really hit. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of an interesting angle or in terms of, it's, it's kind of interesting to try and place this into the uh, the contemporary ideas surrounding sexual morality that were at play here in this uh, very dark year of our Lord 1975 mm. um, because we'd had the um, the kind of sexual liberation of the 1960s. Um, and it was about this point halfway through the decade that people were very much seeing the kind of implosion of this in so many ways with like these uh, people people getting fucked up, people turning up to have joined weird cults, people getting a bit disillusioned and maybe uh, maybe this kind of wonderful world wasn't really as as brilliant as it initially seemed. But we hadn't yet had that very sharp kind of terrifying kind of it almost kind of felt like a symbolic like oh god this is this is the 60s turning really bad um, and now sexual liberation is sexual peril mm. uh, that is represented by the spread of aids uh wait wait um but yeah yes. uh uh, yes, I, yeah, precisely. The seventies has often been described as the kind of cultural hangover that um, we had after, like, the great liberatory experiment of the sixties. That's why. That's why, though, sixties sci-fi is very optimistic and psychedelic. Seventies sci-fi is shivers and uh, rollable. Uh, oh, we have to think of an excuse to uh, do rollable. We at absolutely some point. do. Uh, we, we we can find a horror angle somewhere mm. uh, and uh, and. Other films like Logan's Run and THX One One Three Eight, which are all sort of like about, which are all sort of like dystopic nightmares of various uh, shades and yeah. uh, stuff like that. And I think it's it's worth kind of um, looking into basically that we have two um, two great works of dystopian fiction of the twentieth century are kind of nineteen eighty four and Brave New World, and they both very much kind of gravitate around. Well, they don't equally gravitate around sexuality, but sexuality has a very distinct character in each of them, because in 1984 we have the Anti-Sex League and a very kind of repressive and 
um, kind of authoritarian attitude to sexuality, whereas in Brave New World we have the complete opposite. Um, but rather than being this kind of glorious liberation uh, that's predicted, it's actually, it's become kind of diminished. It's been kind of um, not... Deliberate. It's, um, um, in both, well, I think the thing is, in both dystopias, sex is controlled, but in very different ways. Yeah. Uh, in 1984, um, sex is controlled... Um, in you know, sort of the boot upon the face kind of way. Mm. Um, it's just, it's about you know, the elimination and total control of sex by the state, the elimination of the orgasm is stated as an ideological objective of the state, and eventually everyone's going to be reproduced art by artificial insemination. Mm. But with um, Brave New World, um, sex is very much liberated, um, but um, this is what um, Arcuse calls repressive desublimation. That's sort of like... Um, you're free to have any kind of sexual expression uh, you want, but kind of within the uh, the limits that society has imposed. Mm. So you are expected to attend uh, your or the orgy, and you're expected to take your um, pleasure enhancing drugs and stuff like that. Uh, and and this sort of like and, and this. Um, this liberation of sex is only a liberation in the same way that, uh, that Marcuse would say, but in the same way that um, the fact that you can buy uh, Marx or Freud in the drugstore is a liberation. It is, in the sense that it makes it available, uh, these, um, these ideas of these experiences available, but only so as much as it can be encoded by capital all the same. Mm. Um, but in terms of thinking kind of like what the guiding uh, kind of thinkers that influenced um, the vision that's brought about by Cronenberg uh, in this film, I think one of the key figures we have to really talk about is Wilhelm Reich. Because uh, Wilhelm Reich was, um, amongst other things, a kind of rogue Freudian. Uh, he was um, quite, he became kind of notorious in more esoteric circles for his uh, fixation on orgone energy, which was taken up a lot in the 60s um, by kind of New Age movements, the idea of um, sexuality actually having these mystical properties and uh, something that you could kind of condense into these kind of he believed industrial that units. What, 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 yeah, what was you probably explain them better than I can. Reich came to believe that there was a immaterial uh, life force, a vital energy that uh, permeated the universe, which he named orgone, the portmanteau of orgasm and ozone. Uh, and orgone um, was uh, sort of like... Was, was sort of like the directive force of uh, all design and complexity in life in the universe, and that it is especially generated uh, by uh, sex and sexual desire. He believed that all basically all social and uh, physical and mental health problems are caused by deficiencies or corruption of orgone energy. Yeah. So what we need, as far as uh, Reich was concerned, was uh, a massive uh, was to, to liberate sex so we can get out there and generate those positive orgones yeah. and uh, save the world, and it'd be yeah. great. Um, it's but but um, it is worth mentioning that this. Like Reich was very, um, he was very ill. Like he was clear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was clear. Like um, he almost certainly was a paranoid schizophrenic because he uh, he reported like seeing orgone energy like visibly. But he was able to see it and um, and uh, he used it to shoot down UFOs and things like that. He clearly he he did in the very very um, literal and genuine sense. Clearly became very ill. Um, but 
before he had this um, episode, he was doing uh, interesting sort of like radical work, subvert, although he was a Freudian, subverting Freud, uh, mm. Freud's uh, actually quite prudish ideas about sex and thinking about it in, in terms of politics, in terms of what, what, almost like saying, what's, what's sex going to be like when we have communism? Yes, and, and that was kind of, that was a big part of what he was doing. I guess we could think of him very much as a kind of precursor to our own Dr. Hobbes in this film, in that he was, uh, he saw kind of, sexual liberation as playing into a kind of new world order and it's like you say he was going he was kind of anti-freudian in some sense even though he was working from that kind of initial format uh, but he saw from what i've from what i've gathered he saw freudianism as being almost prescriptive like uh, what freud talked about with the um the oedipus complex um he he saw what he was doing as kind of overthrowing the oedipus complex because the oedipus, oedipus complex wasn't a kind of natural reaction so much as something that we've arrived at through a kind of state sexual repression and sex is something greater and much more man many multifaceted than um than what than what kind of Freud saw in this in this world and so kind of was pushing an angle there. But um but yeah I guess in even though kind of he both he and Hobbes I guess I guess even though um he may have may well have been an influence on this film i think what we see played out in the actual film is much more a confirmation of the freudian in a lot of ways and wilhelm reich was of course immortalized in kate bush's song cloud busting mm. which is the nicest song and i love it very very much i also have my own pet theory that he was the inspiration for the character william t Riker in star trek the next generation and that in <laughs> fact the holodeck is um Functioning as an orgone energy collector from the many kind of sexual situations that William Riker just can't seem to stop creating in his spare time. Are you saying that dilithium is in fact crystallised orgone? What else is it? Uh, well, indeed, indeed, because they can't replicate it either. Mm. It has to be, it has to be mined. But is the mining <laughs> well, well? We'll just leave that. We'll leave what the mining is to your imagination. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, down the rabbit hole. Ah. Um, but yeah, bringing it back to the film, though, I mean, um, it's interesting, I mean, picking up on um, the idea of, like, uh, are we seeing a kind of Reichian vision or are we seeing a Freudian vision? And I think we're very much coming out at the at the idea of the, the Freudian rather than the Reichian. What's interesting is actually, you mentioned with your point about um, it being a zombie or whether or not it's a zombie film. Um, I think it's quite crucial to point out that um, only two characters, as far as we know, actually... Oh, very... Really I see know, we, we see we three see people die. Yeah, we see th a total of three people die. I was trying to think on the spot there. There's a guy in the basement and the doctor. But um, Well, I think it's sort of like... Um, well, of all the victims... Like, I mean, all the people in the film, there's uh, Dr. Hobbs himself, there's the woman... Yeah, uh, and I then there's the guy in the cellar who gets bludgeoned to death. Yeah, and yeah. then there's uh, Hobbes' assistant who comes to uh, who gets. Um... Mm. But for the most part, basically, they're not killed by the worms. They're killed by other people uh, in their responses to the worms or trying to prevent the worms from doing things. And that's kind of quite interesting um, to see playing out if we're trying to think in terms of like whether this is a Reichian or a Freudian film. Um, the key scene that I really um, hinted on with that was. Uh, there's a scene where um, a guy is taken ill. Essentially, we don't know. Well, we, it's pretty obvious that he's been parasitized by the worms. Uh, and then the doctor, who is the the other doctor who's called out to the site at a later point in the film, uh, comes to pay a visit to him. And we're seeing two very different 
reactions to sexuality and to the libido, uh, but both through a very, very Freudian filter. Because we have the guy who's uh, been parasitized, and he is clearly kind of coming around, as I, as I keep saying, coming around to their way of thinking. He's delighted that um, he's been parasitized, and he's nursing it like this friend. He sees it as, kind of, it's, it's interesting because he refers to it as something separate to himself, but something that's also a part of him. And um, it's protruding from his lower abdomen in a way that is unmistakably phallic. He's getting... Lovingly, he's, lovingly stroking it in bed. Yeah, and, referring to uh, it as a mate, as a boy, and he's cheering it on almost. I mean, that is, <laughs> that is pretty, pretty phallic, intensely phallic. And I don't think we can... We've already mentioned, like, you know, these things look like dicks. Um, interestingly, like, Cronenberg originally saw them as being spider-like things, and the fact that they're worm things was just easier to animate. But <laughs> I think, you know, that that was um, serendipity, really, because it came out so very well. But in the opposite kind of end of that scene, the Doctor comes in, and he has a um, a worm latch itself onto his face, um, in much the same story we saw with the lady in the laundry room. Um, and that again, both of these scenes would, in fact, be a big influence on uh, Ridley Scott's Alien. Mm. Which again, another kind of phallic horror entity. Something that again we will cover in the future. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, but in in this sense, um, his reaction is very different because he gets it onto his face, and he um, his reaction is to ply it, try and pull it off. And when he's unable to pull it off, get a pair of pliers and haul, like wrench it off and cut it in half. Um, and this kills him. But what we're seeing is. A, a fleeing from his own libido, from his own sexuality, and a demonstration of a... It's like a castration fantasy. He's um, castrating himself as an alternative to becoming part of this world of this threatening sexuality that is overwhelming him. And this is kind of the bit that really pr- facilitates the end, kind of climactic, uh, no pun intended, um, kind of conclusion of the film, because that's where we see all these things play out. Mm. And it's interesting thinking about kind of how the um, the sexual morality of these things can be considered in a Freudian context, because we have we have two things. We have um, one, we have like two instances of homosexual behaviour, which are presented very differently, and in both cases in a very kind of nineteen seventies way. I think this um, we always say um, we've reached a point of peak seventies in every film we cover, and I think this is it. Um, there's the peak seventies kind of... is never anything good, is it? No, well, I don't know. Dennis Hopper's face. <laughs> Dennis Hopper's wonderful sort of like his hair, his moustache. Dennis Hopper. Do- Do- Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland. Because I, was... <laughs> I said Dennis Hopper. You said I that... was thinking of Land of the Dead. But, um, I, but yeah. I, again, as you can tell, I'm, I'm quite ill. I'm very, very, t- I'm getting very tired now. <laughs> um, but basically, yeah. So we've got um, we've got two two uh, homoerotic scenes. One is kind of played as a horror scene. It's played as a kind of threatened rape, where the guy gets uh, pursued down the corridor by two kind of openly gay. Well, you know, very. They're kind of like coded gay. They're coded, coded gay. gay. Coded, yeah. Like they've got, one's got a moustache. They're both kind of like, hey, do you want a party? Um, <laughs> and that's kind of interesting, kind of in terms of the biology of what's happening here, because it's it's implying that um, well, it's un- it's left ultimately unclear whether um, the worms can affect sexual preference in the same way they affect. Um, affect uh, sexual hang-ups in general or does or do, um, or do they just um do uh, they do in, both it, or, or yeah if, if they just intensify desires one already has all or flesh is erotic flesh or if, yeah if it just yeah. makes it you into everything lampshades bicycles uh keychains everything buildings buildings yeah i mean that is kind of 
that again, it's like you know the the uh, the eroticization of the building, the the freedom of the libido and the displacement thereof. It all it all kind of links together. But um, but the other thing we see interestingly, and which I think you pointed out is like kind of one of the most disturbing scenes in the entire film is is the bit where he's going. I think it's they go down to the basement and there are the children. And the children are not kind of having sex because that would be gross to depict on film, but they're behaving as dogs. They're being walked around on leashes. Uh, but and um, like the 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 implication there that 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 this is the part that they're playing in the new sexual sort of like uh, in the, in the new. I, I was going to say new sex world. Mm. And again, I think that is something that's very Freudian because. Um, they're kind of it's an, it's demonstrating an underdeveloped sexuality because they're um, exp- trying to express some form of physicality, but their mental makeup hasn't matured. They haven't gotten past the mirror stage or whatever Freud would have identified it as uh, in order to start creating that kind of object attachment that would then function focus onto another human being, and so they're presenting it through these kind of immature expressions of. Um, undeveloped sexuality, so pretending to be animals, um, and there's also the, there's obviously there's also simply the implication that they're they're being walked by an adult who's claimed them mm-hmm. as as their as uh, as as their um uh, as their sexual playthings yeah. because sort of like um it is very because like there's not there is it is uh, a nightmare this film it is mm-hmm. um very, it is um. Uh, the sex is violent. It is it is it is, uh, it is it is it is it is just a simply it is simply rape. It is yeah. um, an, it is uh, an orgy of um, uh, destruction and rape, which they then see, which they then uh, compulsively seek to spread. That's why like they're pursuing people who aren't infected in order to force them to take on the parasites. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that we brought up um, right if we're thinking Reich versus Freud and um, the political dimension of it, we talked about kind of the Oedipus complex and the Oedipus impulse earlier and the um, Reich's vision overthrowing it. If we're thinking of this as a Freudian film, uh, we do actually see a kind of, well, a father-daughter interrelationship that is presumably brought about by the sex realms as well, which is very interesting. Yes. Um, But then this all culminates in a glorious scene uh, where uh, the main character, the doctor, goes down to a swimming pool um, and he's kind of dragged in and effectively sort of set upon by all of the um, all of the residents of the hotel have gathered together, not the hotel, the, the, the apartment block have gathered together at once. And this I found just, this is an extraordinarily compelling scene in a number of ways. It, works, it, is, the, it is easy, it's the best scene in the uh, film, yes. Because it works on so many levels, because like on a purely cinematic level it it's far more impressive than watching someone just get mobbed in a hallway <laughs> because it's like you've got the um the, the lack of control associated with being in water it's like you can see all this sort of uh, people emerging and kind of it gives the impression that they're all kind of fusing because they're all in the same water that um they're all kind of becoming part of this same entity that is literally engulfing and swallowing him mm. and if we think about kind of like how people get infections in the rainforest there are you're more likely to actually get a kind of waterborne bacteria or, or parasite by swimming in water because that that way you're open to so many more things because uh, it creates a kind of channel directly into you. Yes, indeed. There are uh, microbes in the uh, Amazon that can swim up your stream of pee. Yeah, that's... it's. When I learned that, that um, freaked me out so much that if I ever go to... Uh, that's body horror that's real. <laughs> yeah, it's body horror that's real. That, that's freaked me out to the extent that sort of like, if I go to the loo and someone's, like, uh, and someone's used it, I have to flush it before I can read into it, just in case. Yeah, I do just, just in case, yeah. Yeah. Um, huh. also, but, I, also, just who the hell doesn't flush? What my God, what's wrong with people? Mm. But then it has this other level, which um, 
is kind of like this kind of apotheosis almost because it what we're seeing is a baptism he's being brought out into the water surrounded by these kind of ecstatic awestruck people and being brought under the water and rising up again and it is like he's been baptized but baptized into this sex cult into this biomorphic polyamorous or poly poly um poly, poly everything poly polymorphous polymorphous kind of new sexual sphere and the new sexual order and then we see kind of like the the nurse emerging looking kind of like a like kind of angelic kind of christ-like glowing walking over to him um like almost like she's walking on water kind of wading through the shallows uh then she latches onto his face and she gives him this kiss that transfers the parasite into his body and that's like it's like a eucharist it's like here is uh, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, and so it becomes part of you. And that's what um, that's what they're talking about at the beginning. This I've idea. Got rather, oh God, rather horrifyingly, actually. So, sort of like we know from um, uh, the early Christian church celebrate. It's not clear if this was the Eucharist or if this was just a meal that followed it. But there's references to a kind of a ceremonial gathering which was called the Love Feast. And they don't uh, snowballing. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, go on. Uh, um, but this was taken by the Romans uh, because during the Roman persecution, they did assume this was some kind of like perverse sex thing because love feast. It does sound a bit dodgy, and uh, there, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was also sort of like um, they thought that the whole eat the eat the flesh, drink the blood thing was also had it was actually a little cannibalistic mm. uh, element to it. Uh, so yes, it is very much like a horrible, perverse um, reversal of uh, Christian tradition in that regard. And it's beautiful. It is shot very, very nicely. Uh, an intent, yes, uh, an intent, a very, an interesting and intensely unpleasant film. Mm. And then we have this glorious end scene, which is like the end of every swingers party. They're all looking kind of sheepish, but also a bit smug, driving <laughs> out in like, as couples in cars, about to go out into the world again. After after the kind of piercing light of day is uh, revealing their crimes to the universe, yeah, their, their, their withered flesh, their old flesh, which might not be that erotic after all. Mm. Um, should we say our final points about this film? Our final impressions. This was this was a disgusting film. It is a disgusting <laughs> film, isn't it? Deeply unpleasant. It's deeply un- um, I. Uh, as I'm, important as it was, you know. <laughs> I'm not crazy about this film. Uh, I think it's very important to bear in mind this is Cronenberg's first feature. Mm. Um, he is kind of like um, uh, a blueprint for most of his films it's to come. It's a real promise of things to come. Yeah, and, like he, he starts yeah. to address he like um, he starts to address um, the, the the themes that are really going to dominate his career to do with the uh, the vulnerability and fragility of the body to do with sex and especially with new forms of uh, sexual desire and new relations with the body and indeed the new flesh mm. and with that and with that uh, thank you for joining us in this uh, horrible journey into the mind of David Cronenberg uh, especially thank you for putting up with my croaky in- increasingly slow, tired, confused speech uh, I promise to be right as rain when we uh, come back next time to do with something similar but once again very different I've been Sean. I've been Lucy. And thank you for joining us. Good night.